The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. I don't care, I don't give a damn. British justice is a farce and a sham. I'll not have singing in this court. Hello. There are many things which sustain us in life. Companionship, community, a sense of purpose. All these are necessary, but what if one necessity threatens the rest? What if one element without which we cannot live threatens all the others? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and gardener, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's discussion covers the 1985 comedy Water, starring Michael Caine, Leonard Rossiter, Brenda Vaccaro, Valerie Perrine, and Billy Connolly, and written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. My guest is Anthony Malone, and you join us in the shade of palm fronds, only yards from the Polynesian surf. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jeremy. You're, you're well, I take it? Yes, I am. Ah, just allow me to take a drink. Oh, what exactly are you partaking of there? I am enjoying a drink of delicious fresh water. Well, now, what are the chances? Um, it's neat vodka, by the way, uh, listeners. If only it were. Yes, a nice, delicious, refreshing glass of water. Is it? Does it? Is it slightly lemony with a fizzy? Uh, and it, need, need, and it needs, needs make, makes me go for a wee wee. <laughs> so tell me. Oh dear. What can you tell me about Leonard Rossiter? Well, I know he's very good in this film, for a start. Um, I don't know enough about Leonard Rossiter, and I don't know enough about um, his uh, the, his career. I know that he's in an awful lot of films that I really like, and he is always good. Um, I know you recently mainlined the Pink Panther films, and he is in one of those, getting bullets taken out of his bum and being very amusing about it. And I know nothing about it. I've never watched um, uh, Reginald Perrin. That's an oversight you must correct. I will do that. And I think um, he's in 2001. It's not even his only Kubrick film. Very true, isn't he in Don't Tell Me, Barry Lyndon? Correct. Excellent. And I'm sure he pops up in lots of other things. Well, he was... uh... A major name on stage. Uh, he'd uh, been in Joe Wharton plays. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been in major mo- movies like 2001. And he was a, a major sitcom star. He had the lead in three different sitcoms. Mm-hmm. One on Resurrectional Perrin, Rising Damp, mm-hmm. Tripper's Day. Is that it? My sister adored Rising Damp. It's a very fine series. Yeah, again, it's it totally passed me by. I first saw The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin when I was ten, and I got it straight away. I really must seek that out. Um, isn't it based on a, on some books? It's it's the first series is based on a novel. Yeah, but it's adapted by the author, and then the second and third series were then adapted into books by the author, mm. and then years later there was a a fourth series without Rossiter. 
I know the premise of the series, and the premise really appeals to me. So um, uh, it is an oversight. About, about a suburban executive going insane through the boredom of his middle-class life. And, yeah, it rings bells. <laughs> Actually, listener, I, I, I walked up here from the, uh, from the nearest railway station. Up here? What? Up to where you live, where to I live. your house. Okay. Yeah. And it is exactly like... Reginald Perrin. Reginald Perrin's walk to work every day to the station to take the train. Well, thanks for that, Jeremy. That makes me feel really great about myself. Um, uh, So it's uh, not too late. See you again for another podcast. It's not too late. (laughs) What? Where to? To move to somewhere a bit more sexy? um, New York, maybe? Would that please you? The the only prison that you must truly escape is the one in your own mind. Well, now I've been working on that for many years. I've been trying to dig a tunnel. but I've only got a little, but, I've only got a spoon. But it gave you cramp. <laughs> that's that's my life all over. Anyway, anyway, uh, his last film. Uh, well, one of his last works was uh, the title role in King John for the BBC Television Shakespeare. Oh goodness! But that strikes me as rather a good piece of casting, actually. Um, I've got all of those. Um, I don't think I've seen that one. Well, now you have a good reason. I'll know what I'll be. What, I'm learning a lot today. I'm um, that's that's going on my to watch list. And that was broadcast after his death, but his last film, also released after his death, was Water. No way. After his death. Yes. I had no idea about that. This is why I do cinema limbo because I I get these juicy movie factoids, which the internet won't won't yield. Frankly, I'm t- I'm really um, rather dismayed to hear that because he is excellent in this film he is responsible for a moment in this film which i'd forgotten about which my brother and i when we watched it as as children it used to cause us to roar with laughter and when i saw it again on the rewatch i again fell about laughing and it was such a feeling of joy i'll i'll, I'll point it out when we get to it i think it's just a great moment of 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 comedy um and tell me, how did you come across this film? Um, years ago, Channel 4 broadcast a season of films from Handmaid. Right. And obviously it had all the big highlights, Life of Brian, Withnall and I, but it also included Water. And I remember it had quite a sniffy write-up. Oh. Um, that it was, it was a rather sneery... Oh, Lucky critics. This, this, uh, this misfire. What? Um, that was, you know, helped to sink the British film industry in the mid eighties. Oh, some tosser on the Telegraph or something like that. No, it was the Radio Times. No, oh, well, they know about anything. Um, and I watched it and thought well, that's quite funny. I mean, it's nothing fairly inoffensive in its own way, mm-hmm. but certainly nothing to get angry about. And I had it on my list for a long time because it had that reputation as being the the, the bomb that first put a hole in the side of um, handmade films because it was such a, a big expensive overseas production with big stars and then it flopped so uh, thanks to uh, thanks to yourself for pli- supplying me with a copy I watched it and I thoroughly enjoyed it I thought it was a really nicely written smart well acted of its time but quite um quite modern in its own way film absolutely um, with the most absurdly eclectic cast 
It's like a handover between the generations of having Leonard Rossiter and Billy Connolly in the same movie. Yes, that's a good point. I'm thrilled to hear this because I have deep affection for this film. I didn't know that it uh, almost sank Handmaid. I didn't know that side of its, its history. I knew basically nothing about its production. It underperformed in the UK and I don't think it was even properly released in the United States. Well, when I was growing up, I came across this film on VHS when my parents bought a video recorder it very became very quick quickly apparent to them that they could get my brother and I to shut up if they took us down to the little video rental shop down the road let us pick whatever we wanted to watch and then just stick us in the front room and watching films so we saw some really great stuff we started off watching Clash of the Titans which is a great film to start watching on VHS to explore the fact that you could control what you were seeing on the CV and, and oh, rewind yeah. millennials don't know they're born and um, we saw some greats, and, and my family were uh, are big Michael Caine fans, and Water was on VHS, and so we got this with absolutely, it was a, almost a blind buy, as uh, you'd say these days, and got it home. And it's, I suppose it's a rather strange film for uh, two young kids to be watching, but if you watch the film, you realise, no, this is a really good-natured and really well written film with some blinding performances in it one slightly dodgy performance which we'll talk about and for a long time I mean we watched it when I was about 10, 11 something like that came back to it once or twice over the last 30 years or so thrilled to watch it for this podcast thoroughly enjoyed it that's all I want to say (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm going to be able to catch the last bus home now but I suppose we should go into a bit more depth. Uh, it's written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, the maestros of British television comedy. The Likely Lads, Porridge, Alfie the Zane Pet. Never Say Never Again. Never Say Never Again. Rewrites to the Rock, where they reused jokes from... I... Sorry, not the Alcatraz Rock. Yes, because what? Sean Connery was so pleased by the rewrites they did on Never Say Never Again that he got them in to beef up, beef up his own dialogue. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, now, I I don't know enough about Lafrenet and... Clement. Clement, thank you. But there is a particular joke in Never Say Never Again, which everybody knows is a repeat of a joke from Porridge. And you've got a big smile on your face now. Because I know, you know exactly what, what you're referring yes, to. Yes, which is, uh, could you feel this, what, from here? And I, of course, I grew up with Porridge, and... I was thinking about these two writers before you turned up today and I couldn't identify them in a crowd. I know what they've written, but what I then realised was that they are part of the bedrock of British culture, of that sort of seam across multiple decades, a, a seam of comedy writing. And what water displays, whether or not you regard it as a, 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 a smash hit or whatever, it displays writers who know exactly what they're doing who are professional, who can just write it. They hit the ball straight down the middle of the audience. Yeah. We're not being edgy. We're not being, uh, we're not having having an agenda. Um, You've taken a breath there. Do you think they are being edgy? I think they're being a little edgy. There is actually. They absolutely have an agenda. Okay, yes, I know what you mean. But from the point of view of the comedy, we're not talking, we're not in Russell Brand territory. No, no, the comedy is top level sitcom style humour. And you could put two ten-year-old boys in front of it and they will roll around laughing. And the cast do precisely what's required for the script. And the result is a perfectly amenable 
very good-natured film. Well, it helps that Dick Clement directed as well. He did, didn't he? And he's yeah. actually repeating the job that he had from the film version of Porridge. Oh, really? He which Clement and Frenet wrote and Clement directed. And that also obviously had almost no impact in the United States, mm. where they also changed the title. Oh, really? What did they call it? Doing Time. Oh, God. I can understand why they would have to yeah, change the title. Yeah. Did you know that there was an American remake of Porridge? I heard of that, yeah. Um, Do you know how they made it a bit more um, oh dear. attractive for viewers? No. They set it in Hawaii. <laughs> God bless the Yanks. It also ran for one episode more. And please tell me it bombed like the Enola Gay. No, it did a full season. Oh, okay. Just one season. Where, where did the scripts come from? I believe that they were mostly original. Oh, but it, okay. it kept the the basic characters and the character dynamics. And it was called On the Rocks. Okay. The movie starts with a beautiful vista of the island of Cascara, a British colony in the Caribbean. While on the soundtrack, we have the music of... Is it Eddie Grant? Yes. With the film's theme song. <laughs> and it's... You immediately feel, oh, this is lovely. You're in... It's the beautiful sunshine, the beautiful scenery, wonderful music, upbeat and cheerful. And you think, this is great. And then you look more closely at the island and it's horrible. It's falling apart. <laughs> and I, I completely agree with you. I, watching this again and seeing the shots of, of uh, what's called Cascara, I just immediately thought, I want to move there. And then when they zoom in, <laughs> I'd be thinking, I want to move somewhere which is a bit more five-star. <laughs> And I do want to move somewhere which probably isn't infested with insects and spiders and Christ knows what. It is falling apart. It, the opening credits establish that it's a British colony and, and it's, on its, it's a bit on its wobbles. And that little themette continues and continues brilliantly with Michael Caine's introduction into proceedings. Michael Caine plays the governor of the island, whose name is? Baxter, isn't it? Oh, Baxter Thwaites, yes. Um... His, uh, his manservant is bringing his breakfast out to him where he's pottering about in his garden. Pottering being the right um, And he says, uh, uh, we've got a report here, Governor, about the uh, pineapple crop. He appears behind a large bush, sporting a, um, a, rolled, Wacky a rolled item. A jazz says, cigarette. Never mind the pineapples, wrap your lips around this. So he is struck with my, the sight of Harry Palmer, pophead, chilling out with a, a nice cigarette of... What's he, he has a particular name for it. Jazz um, tobacco. No, it's not. He doesn't call it jazz tobacco. Yeah, this is completely in tune with Kane's career. Remember him in Children um, of Earth. His character in that. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking more that he accepts the scripts based on where they're set rather than what happens in them. I don't know. Because but I know he's in that sort of phase. <laughs> because, but. because supposedly that was why he did Jaws the Revenge. Yeah. Because it's page one, The Bahamas. Right, I'll do it. Yeah, and. <laughs> But I was thinking whether he was miscast in this film and whether Nigel Havers would be a better piece of casting. But then I thought, no, I think Kane is in tune with the fact that Baxter's an emblem of, of the declining British Empire. It's shambling a little. But Kane's doing a... He's got the uptight accent, but he's much looser. Rossiter does the completely buttoned-up yes. um, sexual deviant Brit. I'm but Baxter is, he's, he's an authority figure, he's the guy in charge, he's also growing marijuana in his back garden and cultivating a new strain, and even though the island is falling to bits, he is genuinely concerned 
about the welfare of, of the people under his charge and they genuinely love and respect him. Absolutely. And that continues throughout the entire film. And that's something that I think is important for Clement and Lafrenet. They write about such a huge range of people. You look at the Likely Lads and Porridge and Afida Zenpet. There's a huge broad swathe of, of, of British life there. Largely working class, but it's never written with anything less than affection, love, genuinely liking these characters. Regardless of how awkward and unpleasant, I mean, Terry Collier in The Likely Lads is a, is a really horrible person. I mean, he's, op- he's openly bigoted. Mm. He's incredibly uh, self-conscious about class war and having a chip on his shoulder. Yes. But he's written with such warmth and affection. And it's the same in, in Water. The, you like the characters, even Rossiter's character. Oh, God, yeah. You, you like him even though he's, he's a horrible, self-centred bureaucrat. The only character... And by the way, the opening of this film with Kane smoking the, the marijuana, two ten-year-old boys were plonked down in front of this film on VHS watching this. God bless my parents. So I think if this film was remade today, it would trumpet its diversity from every mountaintop. Water doesn't do that at all. It just no. presents the variety of human existence as a, 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 a normal it, it's thing. It's a given. Yeah. There are some moments where bureaucrats who are set up as silly fools come out with mildly racist things like, oh, they can drive, you know, as long as they don't drive the buses or, you know, some of the Cascarans might, you know, will be building the hotels and being waiters and all of this. But those people who come out with that are painted right from the start as silly fools. Mm. There is, that's what I mean about this film being very good natured. It is just, it's the humanity of it, and that definitely is of a piece with um, with their work. So yeah, and then we switch to um, more introductions. The the radio station. The radio station. We have we have Billy Connolly in the jungle dressed in fatigues. What's yep. a Scotsman? doing on an island dressed as Che Guevara. You have a fantastic DJ, you have a, another Scottish priest working his way up the mountainside for some reason we may find out in a moment. And that's Fulton Mackay. Fulton Mackay. From, um, from Porridge. And boy would he be snapped up to do Father Ted with his performance here. He's giving the archetypal drunk priest. It's very believable in this. Very funny. Um, what's he trying to do to get up to the, uh, the radio station? It's because in a... Um, in a, in a cabinet is a bottle of whiskey and he needs a slug of it and uh, there's something that the DJ says that was mimicked by my brother for years the DJ says right, and now the weather and he looks out the window and goes it's hot <laughs> got that for years at which point the uh, the revolutionaries mount their revolt in both a, both of them yes and it's a wonderful piece of slapstick and, and smash their way through the ceiling it's, at which point the, new, the DJ starts then to read the news by narrating what's happening in the room. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, Father McNabb is the name of the, the priest, and he says, have you taken leave of your senses, as, as Connolly's sitting amongst all this wreckage. And they get up and they sing a song. Um, and it's, because he's the singing rebel. Yes. Who's calling for a Marxist revolution in Cascara. Which, you know, for a, for a populist film, already... This is 
shall we say, interesting. This but is... this is this is handmade films. Their first film mm. was Life of Brian. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So they have a reputation for doing sharper, slightly edgier, offbeaty, off, yeah, more sophisticated comedy. But be able to kind of marry the satire with Billy Connolly falling through the ceiling. Yeah, I love that moment. Um, it's because it's the loss of control and it looks totally real. Connolly at this stage in his career was was still the big yin, and he would get up on stage and do his. Stand up. I discovered recently that that us soft southerners mispronounce that. Well, it's not the big yin; it's the big yin. Oh, right. I must get my brother-in-law to uh, to say that because he's a, a Scot. Connolly hadn't quite yet moved away from his stand-up persona, and all, well, particularly his stand-up persona grew out of music. Yes, exactly. And for half the film, he only sings. He refuses mm. to speak. Until Cascara has its freedom, but he will sing instead. Yeah, which is, I think it's <laughs> it's a nice conceit. It, yeah. It's like a like a goon show parody of Hunger Strike. Yes, yeah. And I reckon Connolly had a hand in um, coming up with those little ditties that um, that he comes out with. And so he broadcasts one of these songs over the radio, and we get shots of um, Cascara, and it is dilapidated. There's been no investment. There's no money. There's no school. There's no hospital. There's no work. Uh, the kids are running around on the streets naked. Uh, but they're all very happy. What they do have is esprit de corps. They are... They're, they're, there's just a sense of sort of Caribbean happiness and, and spirit. Do you think that's maybe a bit of a stereotype, though? Well, I would say that if the film didn't come out with stuff juxtapositions like this it has shots of the community going about their day to day and being very friendly and waving and, and all this being very up and over the top of it Connolly is broadcasting this song telling about telling the British to go back where they belong which is an interesting thing to say about the British when you're putting footage of the Cascaran residents in front of the audience mm. it's just an interesting little dynamic it plays with it I mean honestly I have no I think it is a little bit stereotypical you know that they're all so happy and they're dancing and it's carnival time morning noon and night yeah because uh, it's not like that and it's a shithole cascara let's be honest yeah um, and it's got a bloody oil company a derrick that they drilled for oil and then they abandoned it but yeah I didn't have any massive political problems with that I have to say I found them all really really genial and I thought yeah I'd end up dancing with them at the end well, the radio is broadcasting also into the governor's house and it's been listened to uh, not least by the governor who barges into his wife's bedroom and the wife is the problem that I have with the film and it's the problem that my brother and I had when we were young because it, her name is Brenda Vaccaro Yes, and I'm sure you know as well as I do that she was Around in the 80s, in certain films, Supergirl is the one... Yes, of course. Yeah, that she was, was in. She's very recognisable. She's not the, a name, but when you watch those sort of... That cohort of 80s films, she pops up. Shall we be kind here and just say she she's giving a big performance? She reminded me of Gloria from Modern Family. <laughs> The very loud South American wife. Yeah, and she's really going from it. Um, Brenda Vaccaro is from Boston, 
and she I, I was trying to figure out what what she's trying she's trying she's playing Italian American um, she's mentioned maybe Guatemala maybe she's meant to be from Guatemala the yeah character. Um, in the script I thought Penelope Cruz could pull this off in her sleep she gives the same performance much better in Vicky Cristina Barcelona um, Salma Hayek would knock this out of the park <laughs> Salma Hayek is a great comic actor yes she is but I think unfortunately she's been told this is a family film you're playing against Michael Caine who's going to be doing buttoned up we want you to go large Mm. and so she's doing a little bit of pantomime and unfortunately she does go too over the top at times yeah it's the, the the arm wavy stuff it's the funny runs but yeah so i think she's pitched as the comedy elements of the film when actually well, you and i and any viewer of this film will always know that kane has some great lines leonard roster is brilliant in the film so yeah kane hears this this performance of sedition insurrection coming out of the of radio cascara and basically gets the the two rebels arrested uh, just as soon as they finish building the jail <laughs> yes Connolly gets up to say something and of course he doesn't say anything he sings Kane hits the gavel and goes oh I'm not have singing in this court he, he doesn't question the well they want to throw the British out it's all not have singing in this court yeah it's it's procedural it's sort of respecting the institution rather than Anything they're actually saying being um, yes. illegal. And actually, Kane, as it transpires, pretty much agrees with them. He thinks that yeah, you know, these things should be... Their back. aims rather than their methods, rather yes. than smashing their way into the radio station and things like that. The, the rebel singer's name is Delgado. But he's also the son of the priest. Eric the Priest. And it's mentioned as well that... The island's population is descended entirely from the survivors of shipwrecks. Although Kane says that actually McNabb might have contributed to... Uh... <laughs> he has 14 children. Yes. He's been a bit of a naughty priest. A naughty drunk priest. He's, a, he's, well, he's not a priest. He's a reverend. He's okay. Not, no, he's not Catholic. I, I must... I, I concede that point. So it's... He's, he's... He's allowed to enjoy the company of women, but probably not to that extent. Yes, boy, does he. <laughs> Kane and um, and McNabb are having this conversation out on the street, is you know shooting the breeze about the about what's happened. And when Kane walks away, there's a really nice little moment where he high fives one Rastafarian guy going past him and gives him the sort of uh, wrist pull <laughs> shake. And the thing with that moment is that Kane really pulls that off. And what we know about him now and his his love of um, dance music and the performance in Children of Earth, you just think, actually, he is a lot edgier than, uh, and a lot more surprising. The only uh, thing that annoys me about Kane these days is his... Um, his right-wing politics. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, that is a shame. Um, but let's skate over that for the purposes of this film. Um, I, I do enjoy that he and I both have a, a, an unlikely fondness for chill-out music. Yes. I mean, literally, Cause he has I, albums. Because I, I love 90s dance music. I've got the complete works of Daft Punk and... <laughs> I, I really do. I bought, I've got uh, The Best of Chicane, which I listen to on repeat. Oh, it's great. Good taste. You and Michael Caine. Yeah. As long as we only talk about music. <laughs> and not about immigration. And Europe, yes. And tax dodging. Mm. Anyway. But, um, but, uh, the, uh, the oil companies come back to the island. They have. In order to um, shoot a commercial. At the derelict oil derrick. They are called Spenco. And Which is a horrible name. It is, yeah. 
and they're horrible people and they go up to the the singing rebels who visit and they go do you speak english being patronizing from the off they're your stereotypical yanks who you know dumb and some rednecks and and fred Gwynn is going to portray a fantastic stereotype as we go through never mind poor old cascarans it's the the yanks who should be complaining about this film yeah yeah so they the governor gets to invite these guys around to his place just to have a a quick drink and his wife comes and and makes a bit of a a fool of herself she's dressed as some sort of spanish spanish senorita she has a great line so did you come to look for oil and sink some pipe Oh, <laughs> and one of the American guys goes, "Ma'am, that well is dry." <laughs> and it's that sort of writing that's shot through this script. It's brilliant. It's um, it's witty. That's what it is. It's intelligent humour. There's a they cut to the after dinner drinks, and it's wonderful. It, uh, immediately, Eric is blacked out on the he is, table, face down on the table, whilst they're talking away from him. The, the governor's wife is flirting with one of the American guys and saying how much she wants to get off the island and all of this. Meanwhile, the rebel but, singers... Uh, there's some Cubans have arrived enough. on the island. Yeah. The scope of this film, by the way, is pretty incredible where it goes. I know. It get, uh, they it, know no fear. It's... Um... It's almost like Edge of Darkness in how the, the scale of the story expands further and further. Yeah, that's precisely it. We, we start off in this film with Michael Caine smoking a joint behind a bush. And we go all the way to the White House. Well, by the end of it, we've got a concert playing on the floor of the United Nations. Yes, indeed. The rebel singers suggest to the Cubans that there might be a bit more of oil on the island, that Spenko are back, and that means there must be some sort of oil... So immediately the Cubans go, oh, all right, we'll help. Which is one of many competing elements in this film who are going to set up a big crash at the end, uh, fighting over the the water as yeah. it transpires. And meanwhile, back in Westminster, mm. some civil servants are discussing a request from Baxter for increased funding. And they have no interest in doing so. The CIA wants the island... Because the CIA have because reported the, the Cubans are getting involved. Because because of that. Yeah. And they say, well, we don't want another Falklands. No. So their plan instead is to evacuate the island entirely and turn it into a nuclear waste dump. There's a nice dig at the Falklands. This film is just, it has a knock at the Conservatives, this film. He talks about the expense of defending British lives, most of them sheep. Which was a common complaint at the time with people who took against the Falklands War that actually it's a bit of mud in the middle of the, the sea and there are not that many people on it. Well, I, my main concern would be that even though those people do consider that their home and do want to remain there, if we hadn't withdrawn the South uh, Atlantic patrols in the first place, the Argentinians would never have invaded in the first exactly. place. Exactly, they wouldn't have forced around on South Georgia or wherever it was. So um, those who were taken in by... Uh, Thatcher's militarism sort of overlooked the fact that if it wasn't for her own penny pinching, the whole thing wouldn't have happened in the first place. Mm. And the fact that she was dipping in the ratings and a war was incredibly convenient. Oh yeah, there's nothing better for your own popularity than mm. smashing the shit out of Johnny Foreigner. And then when they all came home, she was unbeatable in the polls and the rest is history. Well, when most of them came home. Well, yes. Point taken. Does Leonard Roster's performance in this film remind you of anybody? Ray Fiennes. Absolutely. I'm so <laughs> glad you said this. Has Ray Fiennes, particularly in the Grand uh, Budapest Hotel, 
Um, oh yes, oh, that would have been wonderful with Leonard Rossi. I know he would have been perfect because I think that's the performance Ray Fiennes gives in that film. It's Leonard Rossiter. Oh, Miss Jones. <laughs> Folks, watch this film. Watch Water and uh, just look at Leonard Rossiter's performance and think Ray Fiennes. It is quite scary. It's like Voldemort. Uh, Rossiter goes back to the office and says, "Right, I'm going to have to drop in on the island and tell them." tell them the news and he uh, he quietly asks his uh, secretary do you have a bikini now in any other script the secretary would take offense at this and she would continue to take offense at Rossiter's continual suggestion that she dress up as a schoolgirl or as a nurse but most amusingly she's completely on board totally into it she does not bat an eyelid and I really enjoyed that you can tell, yeah, I got a kick out of this film big time. So, yeah, they, the island hears that the British um, minister, they're sending Sir, Sir Malcolm to visit. And there's a really nice collage of the island putting the flags out and all of this. There's a nice bit where the governor's wife takes a stepladder away from one of the, the helps <laughs> and he ends up hanging from one of the fans in the ceilings. And meanwhile, Spenco are um, filming their advert. And this is going to be boring because I'm repeating myself, but this is most amusing. The, the the guy that they get to front the advert, Dick Shaw, is just brilliant. He plays someone called Deke Halliday for Spenco. He has certain requests to make. He has a wants list to do this uh, on an island in the middle of nowhere. He says, um, one of the Americans says to him, how about some grass? They grow some lethal weed here. He wants women. He wants booze. He says he's wearing a yellow hat. And he says, yellow is such a faggy colour. And then he calls over wardrobe. Get me one of these in plaid. Now, as a kid, <laughs> that went over my head because I didn't know what plaid was. But then I re- actually, that's, <laughs> that's amusing. And the governor turns up with his wife. And Deke Halliday's reaction is a spot-on piece of writing from uh, Clement and Lafrené. Uh, he assumes this is the, the prostitute that's been organised for him. <laughs> um, Kane tells his wife, I told you not to wear those shoes. It's just, it's just really well, wonderfully written. This is not going to, this is not Tarantino and Pulp Fiction where it's going to, you know, it's breaking boundaries. It's not, it's not particularly innovative. It is rock solid comedy writing. It's witty, it's British, it's characterful. And in amongst all of this characterization, the, the well blows yes but it's not oil that springs out twist a roo it's water they've, no they've struck a perrier gutter do you think that might be why the film's called water no wow and an extra twist is it's actually special water they've struck perrier <laughs> Which is, there's a joke in Red Dwarf, which I mentioned because Ruby Wax is in this film, where the joke is that the world supply of Perrier is, is knocked out by a bomb or something, and the, they're worried that the middle class will be wiped out overnight. So I think this was in the air at the time. Perrier adverts were also on the cinema. So anyway, they, they've, they've struck Perrier, and they're going to throw another dinner at the, um, the governor's place. And his wife is wandering around in a basque, and being shouty and pulling the tablecloth off the table and just generally being a bit of a headachey nightmare. I've never found her very funny at all. I don't I think she's meant to be funny. 
but I'm I'm not entirely sure it works. I think she's meant to be funny in how awful she is. It's comedy awful. You're right. Yeah, it's um. I I think she just doesn't have the the. There's just something not right. I mean, she needs to be, I think, more of a bombshell type to make it work. That Baxter married her for her looks because her personality is a walking nightmare. Yes. So I, th- I think your idea that, that it would be a Salma Hayek type because she's fantastically gorgeous and an yes. amazing comic actor. She's really underestimated as a comic actor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and but she can do control. The problem with this performance is that it's it, too big. It's too much. It's There's too, a lack of control. It's too cartoonish. Yeah. Whereas someone like Salma Hayek would be able just just to finely tune the volume. It's a really difficult thing to get right, and unfortunately, she just overplays it too much. Mm. It doesn't kill the film though. Approaching Cascara is the the British envoy Sir Malcolm with his secretary saying that we'll be five minutes on this island and I'll be off and I'll take you to San Lucia the island on which Cascara is is meant to be is San Lucia I believe yeah Rossiter has a very nice little character moment where they turn away from the camera and he very gently and subtly puts his hand on his secretary's bum and she does not take it off and will slap him which is what would be a standard comedy thing yeah get your hands off me you depraved Brit so it's, it's just a nice little um, tweak. They're waiting on the, the quayside for his arrival, smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> they light a cannon to welcome him. Oh, yes, and it explodes. <laughs> it almost <laughs> blows the house up. The poor guy setting the table in the house, it looks really dangerous. I'm sure they did a quick cut away, but he's standing against the far wall when oh, yes. the wall explodes into this ball of flame. And then he just throws down a, a, you know, walks off and goes, I'm going to have to reset that. Great visual gag when Leonard Rossiter approaches the island. They want to say, welcome, Sir Malcolm. But actually it says, Malcolm, Sir Welcome. Malcolm, Sir Welcome. Yes. It's just tiny. That's all we want from films like this. We want nice, gentle humour that's done and, well positioned. And they, have, they play the Cascaran anthem, which comes with gestures. They do. Before, before they do that... When Rossiter gets just off the boat and extends a hand to Kane, Kane draws his sword out and almost takes out Rossiter's eye. And the way, that's very, very well done. Rossiter's reaction there, as he jerks his head away, is just really well played. Rossiter does it again later on with a little stumble that he does. Then they, they come off the key, and as you say, yeah, they play the Cascaran anthem. And I believe this was the bit that was played on TV at the time because they I mean it's all rationalised yeah they do funny movements of swimming movements along to this anthem because the island is descended from shipwreckers who clearly swam their way off the wreck to the island and um, after all it's it's different strokes for different folks yes isn't that that's uh, pleased with that yes I also like the fact that there's a tiny little pickup shot of a nurse attending to the people who lit the cannon. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, dabbing away bruises and, <laughs> and picking out, I do like all of that. So, yeah, they get the entire village, by the way, the entire town, to do all the movements along to the anthem, which, which is really nice, really. They drive away. Dolores, which is the governor's wife, yes. behaves like the queen in the car. She's doing a little regal wave. 
Kane's face is totally po-faced. There's a lovely running gag that uh, the Cascarans openly hate Dolores. Yes, they do. Yes. <laughs> they cheer when things go wrong with her, which, believe me, is what we were doing. The ride in the car ends quickly because Roster says, no, I'm only here to tell you one thing. This island has no future. We're basically going to ship everyone off it to a nearby island. You should start closing things down. Kane is very good at repressed anger. Mm. He can really snap at someone. And he does righteous anger um, here where he basically says, what are you offering as compensation? A bag of seed and a mud hut? And Roster walks away and goes, yeah, not even that. People have left more beautiful islands than this to live in the Bronx. Mm. The grass is always greener and also more expensive. So in any other film, he'd be a hateful figure. He'd be, he's the bad guy. But because it's Leonard Rossiter and because he's, he knows exactly what he's doing, you know he's a, a comedy figure. Mm. And we know that we should be laughing at him because of his tiny sexual peccadilloes and all of this. Kane gets up and tells the island this bad news that they want to evacuate the place. This is not good. Dolores can't wait to go to London, though. She wants... She's thinking about Lord and Lady Thwaites of London. She's thinking about Harrods. Bond Street. <laughs> Harrods is bloody horrible. She's, she can have fucking Harrods. And I'm thinking that would be like Paddington, but backwards. Because <laughs> it's about a, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. a central South American coming to London and everyone despising them. Yes. <laughs> So anyway, they they say uh, back on the the oil rig that they're looking at about one and two billion barrels a year. This is a lot of water coming up out of the ground, which apparently is drinkable. The governor embarks upon a, a house garage sale property. The island looks like it's closing down. This is not good news. But then an environmental activist appears on the scene. Can I point out one extra joke, please? That's during the house sale. There's a gentleman looking through the uh, property that's being sold off, picks up a book, turns to the camera. The book is The Beverly Hills Diet. That's a good joke, that, because it's character joke. That's Dolores' book. It must yeah. be. And he's picked that up. And he's a poor, poor, he's a poor in the actual sense, <laughs> reading The Beverly Hills Diet. And yes, we get Miss Tessmacher from um, Superman. Academy Award nominee, Valerie Perrine. <laughs> what did she win for? Was it... Um... Nominee. Best Actress for... Ma uh, not Marty. Lenny. Oh, right. Is that with... Um... Dustin Hoffman uh, yeah. as Lenny Bruce. Right. Yeah, she's giving... She's, play <sighs> she's playing it straight. She's... She's aware that she's not the lead. So she's not getting mm -hmm. a lead performance, but she's a little bit low energy, I think. Because I, it doesn't help that Brenda Vaccaro is sucking yeah, all the life yeah. out of the room. Um, but she's playing it much more... Yes. Much more tempered. She's playing it in Superman. She, she, plays, it, she plays much more of a sort of sex bomb role. And she's, she's set up as the sort... She's definitely set up as physically attractive in this film. She's also set up as... The, she's an environmental uh, activist. And it reminded me of... That's the one, thank you. That's why I invite you onto these shows, Jeremy, to provide useful details like that. She died the same day as Michael Jackson. Oh, God, really? Yeah. So I bet that was relegated to page two. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's like Mother Teresa all over again. Yes, on Diana's, uh, on the day Diana died. 
In the Cannonball Run, Farah Fawcett is playing the sex bomb. She plays a tree hugger. Whenever she says, I love trees, you get the sort of little flutey thing on the soundtrack. And in this film, it's the same thing with the environmental activists. We're meant to think that she's a bit dippy. And I don't get that sense. She seems just sensible, passionate about the environment, quite down to earth. She's ballsy. Yeah, she's no, no nonsense from yeah. her. Yeah, I, I mean, dippy is the wrong word. She isn't dippy in this film. But I, the, the, the idea of using environmental activism in both films just struck me as things have changed these days. Do that in a film and it would be everyone would be on board with it. They go, yes, that's perfectly fine. Anyway, he, uh, she gets introduced to um, Baxter Thwaites. And they clearly instantly hit it off. And they cut to the owner of Spenco. Yeah. The scope increases again. And Herman Munster appears to be running Spenco. Surely not John Shuck. <laughs> not John Shuck. Fred Gwynn. Of course. Yes. Well, playing it wonderfully well. Getting the tone right. He's holding a board meeting where his, uh, his, his corporate wonk is uh, filling him in on the, the wonders of Perrier. And sitting next to that corporate wonk is none other than... And this is a film in which the cast continually surprises you. It's Ruby Wax. She is giving almost the same performance that she gives in Red Dwarf. Do you mm. remember the scene where she talks about the condom that calls you back and all of that? She's doing the newsreader yes, performance. Yes, Homes of the Rich and Famous. Yeah, she's Time Slides. A role that was originally written for... Don't know. Graham Chapman. Oh, really? Actually, I could see him doing that sort of thing. Yes, doing a... With a moustache, maybe. Mm. She's giving almost the same performance here. And he, this guy basically gets convinced to go into the water business. Well, he's, he's very sceptical and thinks, all oh, this is just you know, those fancy California things. But then it's explained that there is a 700% profit margin. <laughs> so he's basically playing Cliff Barnes. And he's got a great shot. I mean, he, Fred Grimm nails it. If you're going to do that in this in a film like this, then you get that guy to put on yeah. the, the Stetson. And... Anyway, he, uh, Michael Caine on the islands decided to take his, his new environmental activist friend out for a walk around the island, pointing out Calamity Bay and Peril Point and all it's these de- other things. Desolation Bay <laughs> and Point Peril. Because Desolation Island is a real place. And she spots Spenko doing stuff around the rig and asks why are they all carrying baseball bats and putting up wire fences around the place if they're only filming an advert. Um, intelligent question. Particularly since their drilling rights on the have island expired. expired nine years earlier. Quite right. So Michael Caine decides to have a chinwag with the uh, corporate wonk, the um, guy, and they do it over a very nice little open-air scene where they have drinks and all of this. Yes. Um, Caine points out the expiry of the drilling rights. And that puts an instant bullet into this guy's plans. But he, um, it's rather nice because it's very informal. And Kane offers him quite an attractive deal. He says, we'll renew the drilling rights. In return, you invest in the island. Yes. You pay for a hospital, you pay for a school, and we will work for the company and help with the drilling. So we are right on board with Michael. Michael Caine's a really good guy in this film. He's a good leader. He, he's, mm. as I say, he's genuinely concerned about uh, the loss of the islanders and wanting to improve their lives. Yes, this film was kind of in that period. I mean, Caine had yet to make Jaws two, uh, Jaws four, four. He was getting to that point where 
he was clearly losing interest and he was doing it for the money. I think this was just prior to Hannah and Her Sisters. Yeah. It was certainly prior to a, a later 80s film, which I, I love and is comfort viewing, which is The Fourth Protocol, starring, oh, okay. and actually you may have heard of, Pierce Brosnan, who um, is a very good actor and should be figuring more on Cinema Limbo, in my opinion. Well, um, we did talk about Alien 3 a while ago. Did we? Yeah, and you mentioned that um, Charles Dance's first film was For Your Eyes Only. Indeed. And um, uh, one of the supporting cast of For Your Eyes Only was Pierce Brosnan's then wife, who visited the set, was introduced to Covey Broccoli, who had the idea of casting as James Bond in a future film. Superb. And linkage. yet, you, the Pierce-a-maniac... A what? The uh, Bros- Brosnan- Brosaholic... Are you saying I've got piercings? Only Goldeneye. <laughs> that was painful um, in every sense. Uh, I, I, know, <laughs> I know. I watched the surgery. Um, you uh, you didn't uh, mention this at the time, and I was very disappointed in you. There are some things that one assumes are common knowledge and don't really bear repeating because they're so obvious. I mean, there's there's so many things that I don't raise on these podcasts, Jeremy, because, to be honest with you, I just assume that they're that you're aware of them. So that's any omissions I'm are not by only, design. I'm not the only person in the room. The listener is always with us. Ah, but the listener is not omniscient. No, but the listener is in the room. I'm sure the listener would be very interested to know what's going on in that fetid little ball you've got <laughs> inside your head. All I'm saying is that um, The Fourth Protocol is a very good film. If you're after I agree, it uh, is a very good film. Um, Russian agent builds a nuclear bomb and uh, Michael Caine uh, stops him stops him um, uh, and that's, that's the whole film folks that's the film <laughs> and I've got no problem with that and it, star- it also stars uh, Julian Glover who was in For Your Eyes For Only, Arizona, yeah. thank you very much so you're quite right, Caine cuts a deal another illustration of the good nature side of this film so we know everybody has got its lightness of touch and this is about a guy struggling to make life better for the nice people in Cascon. You do know that Piers Brosnan's first film was a handmade production, don't you? Was it The Long Good Friday? Yeah. Oh, excellent. I do remember seeing him in that. He's, um, it's an interesting performance. I'm not going to... He has one word of dialogue, which he ad-libbed. I can't, I don't know what the dialogue, the, the dialogue what was it? Was it a naughty word? Wow, I don't know. I'm going to check that out scene in a swimming pool I seem to remember in that film and a very nice scene at the end where Brosnan anyway why are we talking about Pierce Brosnan you keep, <laughs> you keep on bringing up Pierce Brosnan I can't believe this listener you've no idea what he's like to dealing with this off mic it's it's just an endless just nightmare Brosnan is a, is a good good actor anyway um, so Matt, uh, so Baxter decides he paid to see Mamma Mia 2 just because Pierce Brosnan was in it that is a misrepresentation of what occurred of, no. of actual facts Mamma Mia 2 will not be figuring on Cinema Limbo he keeps telling me to do it I don't know I don't know what other excuses I can make yes well Sir Baxter makes a call to Sir Malcolm who rather wonderfully is on another island the island being St Lucia St Lucia yes having a lovely time with his secretary getting a massage and and of course Sir Malcolm says yeah 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 whatever sell off the drilling right Pff, what the hell you know uh, oh no he gets, says extend the drilling rights everything is for sale on Cascara is what he says what he's more interested in is asking 
<laughs> his secretary, the nurse or oh, the naughty schoolgirl outfit, and Roster looks left to right and says, "Oh, I think the latter," <laughs> which is very naughty. Roster sells it. The French would have a field day with this film. They'd go, "Yes, that's the British disease for you." He's clearly a complete sexual deviant. Uh, he calls her back, by the way, at the end of that film. I find it unlikely that the French would complain about another nation being <laughs> over- overtly so. Okay. For any French listeners, hello. Or bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and sorry about Brexit. Um, the end of the scene, by the way, Roster calls her back and says, Sarah, don't forget the knee socks. Anyway... Pamela, the activist, walks into the room uh, where uh, the governor's front room, because she's staying over, and uh, runs smack bang into Spenco corporate wonk. And she recognises him. Her opening gambit is, what are you doing here, asshole? Clearly they have a bit of history. So she's not very pleased to see Spenco in the vicinity, and there's a very good reason for that. Because she is the daughter of Mr Spender. Indeed. They have history. So she's a rebel daughter who is not entirely happy with her father's dealings in the business community. We also find out why Baxter's on Cascara in the first place. Yes, there's a bit of backstory about she has a blazing row with Dolores, isn't he? And she... Danced topless at a reception for the Duke of Edinburgh. Yes, which is wonderfully just cut off at the end so that the audience knows it's the Duke of Edinburgh. And, and that got them sent off to one of the furthest colonies from the, the centre of the British Empire. Kane thrived there. He chilled out, relaxed, took up growing marijuana. Dolores' dreams of being rich, the, the, the wife of a, an important ambassador, went down the drain. And she clearly went sleeping around with everybody. Kane delivers a uh, a news flash from the from Radio Cascara once again wonderfully smoking on some marijuana, <laughs> and one suspects that Kane's not being in t- he's, he's gone a bit method there. What exactly were they smoking on on uh, the Itcrest file back in the day? I, I I don't think I think Kane is very much a um, uh, an acting actor. Just as uh, Dustin Hoffman decided to run around the block a few times to look breathless on Marathon Man and Laurence Olivier told him, why don't you just try acting? Acting, yeah. I think that Michael Caine is of the Laurence Olivier school where he would, yeah, I'll just fake it. Yeah, he fakes it very I, well. I, I'm an actor, I'll act it. But he's kind of faking the little buzz he gets after a drag on the cigarette. Well, what he does in his own time to yeah. research is another matter entirely. Nice. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he delivers the announcement. He has a blazing argument with Dolores, who says, so you, we're going to have to leave this place, are we? Or rather, let me get this right, we're not leaving this place, that actually we can stay because the residents are going to get jobs with Spenco. And she throws an absolute shit fit. Uh, most wonderfully, um, it gets broadcast to the entire island. And um, She threatens to kill herself. And <laughs> the huge cheer. Literally, hats are thrown in the air. It's very amusing. I mean, okay, it's not radical. That's tremendously but, cruel. But it's but... very satisfying. The joy on people's faces is totally mirrored by the joy on my brothers and I when we were watching it. So um, there's a sign-up day for jobs. The, the corporate guys are on loudspeakers trying to get everybody to sign up to um, a life on the oil derrick, and to, or rather the water derrick. 
And into proceedings come the rebel singers, who are still trying to pursue freedom for Cascara. This is viewed with the our friend, the Scottish priest. There's a very nice little exchange he has with the corporate guy. Uh, the corporate guy says, uh, who the hell is that? That's my son, my son. My son. Which is good. You're, you're his father, father? Father, yes. I love the double whammy there. I, I love what he says. I was driven to sin by solitude and the wind. <laughs> well, there's, there's this endless hot wind that blows over the island. Yes. In all directions at the same time. The rebel singer starts singing once again. Connolly will not put his flipping guitar down. The corporate guy gets the loudspeaker out, goes £100, $100 cash to the first man who nails him. And bullets stuff. <laughs> There's a mad rush to capture the guy, and Connolly and his cohort leap off the balcony of the building. And in, and you have to say a probably a very traditional Lafrenian and Clements um, thing. They land on bikes, yeah, and with predictable results, and they get captured and tossed in jail. They are visited by Pamela, the activist. She's not a dumb blonde in this film. She is. Um, yeah, but she's not Helen Slater. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> I just watched the, the, you know, the unappetising sight of Jeremy melting at the very mention of <laughs> Helen Slater. Don't say unappetising. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm going to have to mop that up. Um, yeah, so she visits the two rebels and says that she's going to contact Amnesty International and her buddies in the media. Ooh, I've heard about that. So she's going to get the message out. So this is escalating very quickly. Just as you're reeling from that, it cuts back to Westminster. And boy, does this put this into uh, 80s British cinema. It's we Rory Lippmann as Mrs. Thatcher. Absolutely. Now, we, we've mentioned For Your Eyes Only a couple of times uh, on this and other podcasts. It's 80s because Maggie Thatcher was box office, literally and figuratively. Stick her in a film and you could at least expect overseas audiences to recognise her and yeah. to know that actually the Brits were, were poking their nose at her and you know thumbing yeah. their nose I thought Maureen Littmer was, was very good I was quite, it was a bit unexpected because what was the name of that other uh, comedian Janet Brown that's the one who whose career was basically Margaret Thatcher for a while yeah she's the one at the end of Fury's Eyes Only um, slapping Dennis's hands away from the cookies and, <laughs> and all of that but Thatcher is good, is comedy gold, and she's comedy gold here because she is playing with a paper knife. And standing in front of her is Leonard Roster having a bit of a meltdown and, um, you know, telling her about the radical insurrection on the island. And the paper knife suddenly thwacks into the wall behind him. Another brilliant reaction from Roster. Thatcher tells him to go back to Cascara and to secretly finance the revolution. Because the deal that's been struck with Spenko grants the exchequer only one cent per hundred barrels of water, where most of the income is actually going to the island. Tiny amount, and Thatcher's not going to have that. So it's an interesting post-colonial story, in yes, that sense. Um, even as late as the 1980s, it's painting the, 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 the British writers very colonialist, very... Uh, um, dismissive of the concerns and the lives of those over whom it is supposed to be mm, um, mm. sovereign. You get a, you do get a sense of a crumbling empire on its you know last legs, disinterested in its furthest outposts, but uh, interested only in 
money and power mm. and not the welfare of the people and shoring this empire up with deals deals underhanded yeah. secretly financing revolutions mm. and so you've got that one way in which I think it's still quite contemporary well yeah because it's this, this illusion that the British Empire is still anything at all and in any way respected anywhere else in the world yeah the, there's a tight there's a little bit of free song with this film that this film still believes that the British had the organisational capabilities to A, have had an empire, and B, be able to strike deals and to secretly finance revolutions and all of that. These days, the British establishment in 2019 could not tie their shoelaces. And it's the entire world is looking at Britain and going, what the hell is going on? And it's, it's a, people are, are in disbelief that we could even have thought about running an empire. The, the crumbling empire in water... The, the critique is of the political establishment. It is of Rossiter's um, Sir Malcolm. The minister is is a silly little fool. The English guy who still has the good heart and wants to help the people is the one who's loosened up by smoking a joint and is helping the Cascarans and will absolutely fight to help that, that body politic. He spent so much time just among the, the actual people, yes. seeing the way they live, totally sympathetic to their lives and wanting to um, do what he can to improve their lot. Yes, exactly. Even if it means that he's going to do a deal with Spenko. But he's doing a really good deal from his point of view. Yes, because he he's giving he's able to give the island everything it needs. In return, they get to buy a natural resource that they can afford to sell. Yes, and it's such a good deal that it pisses off the British establishment. Because they're not making any, any money, money out of it. Exactly, yes. So um, Sir Malcolm's going to hightail it back to Cascara. And we get another very nice little scene. I could watch Michael Caine get high over and over again. Um, <laughs> so he, has, uh, he goes to visit the police chief, and the, and the police chief and him go outside for a quiet ciggy, and there's a great little shot of them just swapping a little jazz cigarette between the oh, two of them. How relaxing. Yeah, nice little night. You can almost feel the air there. It's wonderful. Roster goes and visits the rebel singers in jail and says, I'm going to give you a little bit of a sweet deal and all of this and we're probably going to release them from jail they're cooking rope soup <laughs> uh, and he says you call rope soup a culture so having done that he heads off and has a nice sleep and he gets a knock on the door and this is pure classic comedy scene Dolores visits him and pleads to be taken off the island I'd rather die than stay here and she's going to do anything to to make that happen. And he, of course, despite uh, his numerous sexual peccadilloes, is playing the frustrated, uptight Brit. He comes out with the classic, pull yourself together, Mrs Thwaites. A cold <laughs> bath's the answer. <laughs> when, of course, she's vamping it up no end, wearing a very strange pink bask. She knows exactly how she's going to get around this, this mm. guy. So we'll see exactly whether that manages to defrost Sir Malcolm. The Cubans come visiting and decide to blast the rebel singer out of prison. And Michael Caine decides to, uh, to nip inside just as the bomb blows the side of the prison off in a colossal explosion. Yeah. It goes kaboom. And it is followed up by a superb line. We cut back to Roster in bed with Dolores who 
sits straight up at the sound of the explosion and he says how long has that volcano of yours been dormant I think I sent you that screenshot before <laughs> because it works on so many levels that is he talking about her or is he talking about the actual volcano or, or the explosion the chief of police by the way sleeps through the explosion <laughs> also do you find um, uh, Baxter finds um, the rebels hiding under the bed <laughs> Yeah. Earlier on, it says, "Are you two digging a tunnel or committing an unnatural act?" Ah, oh, British filmmaking. We shall not see its like again. What a pity. I mean, I, you say that, but these days, when Richard Curtis does a standard film, he does About Time or he does The Boat That Rocked, and The Boat That Rocked kind of is is the sort of version of water we get these days. So you get a a big international cast, a specifically British story. It's light comedy, fun for all the family. But isn't there a rape scene? That's the problem. And you get stupid things like Branner is called Twat in that film. Oh, isn't that's he? funny. You just think whereas in Water there are so few there are so few hits that are missed. The jokes are all actually good. Yes. Because it's written by writers who I mean they weren't successful in film so they were having to you know it's a new story new characters they've got to prove everything all over again yeah Curtis has been very successful with a limited number of projects mm. the best thing he's done in the last 20 years was that one episode of Doctor Who he wrote because he was working totally out of his comfort zone and had to prove himself as a writer in a drama about mental illness I agree, but I've got big problems with that episode. I think particularly the ending of it, where it's poking you with a stick and dragging Bill Nye on to tell you how important... Well, that's the Richard Curtisness of it. Yes, and that's what popularism is these days, where it's, it's basically telling, not showing. And also, that's the great... Uh, I remember a fellow Cinema Limbo podcaster, our friend Chris commented on the, the BBC afterwards put up a, um, if you've been affected by any issues in this <laughs> episode oh, of Doctor Who, by, by a monster. monster. Yeah, and, and the stupidity of having Amy being written into one of the bloody pictures at the end. So I've, got, I've definitely got issues with that. I think the best thing that Rich Curtis has done is Bernard and the Genie. Um, but that's not within the last 20 years. No, that's a long time ago. I haven't seen Bernard and the Genie since it was broadcast, but I have very fond memories of it, and I really think it should be uh, released on DVD. And I believe I posted that on Twitter, and his wife liked it. I seem to remember you doing that. Yes, that it absolutely should happen. Yeah, that's back when you you could do an original project and put it on in prime time at Christmas and expect eight to ten million viewers. Well, it helped that it's you know it had Lenny Henry in the lead it role, did. and it's got Rowan Atkinson in the supporting role. Alan Cum Cumming performance, yeah, being very charming in that role. If Water was released at the cinema these days. Do you think it would be uh, bombed? Do you think it would sink? I think it would depend entirely on the cast. Mm. Um, I was—I uh, like to sort of do fantasy recasting, and I was thinking about who could play the major characters. Because mm. um, you just know they'd stick Russell Crowe in the Michael Caine role. Russell Crowe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be up for this, no problem. Smoking joints, being a bit on the skids, affecting was... a British accent. Oh, You'd love it. you know it. If I was in charge, I would ask him to remove himself. Rowan Atkinson would be in the Leonard Roster role. Rowan Atkinson's too old. He is now, actually. You're right. In fact, because Dennis O'Brien, who was the, the 
the financial head at uh, Handmade was so convinced that it was the Python Film Company. He wanted John Cleese as Sir Malcolm. Oh, really? Yes, that would have which been Which is an, an entirely logical bit of yeah. casting, but it just wouldn't work the same way. Do you think Rowan Atkinson in Never Say Never Again is of a piece with Leonard Roster's role in this film? No, they're totally different characters. Really? Yeah. I mean, one is a junior functionary. Well, Nigel's, his, the his character of Nigel Small Fawcett is a buffoon and an idiot. Mm. Whereas uh, Sir Malcolm Leverage is an operator who is out-operated by someone else. That is exceptionally well put. Thank you. There you go. Didn't even, it's not even from my notes, listener. That's entirely off the top of my head. That's a lie. That's, you see, that's, written down. This he is made the, me ask that question. See, you don't get this kind of sophistication on how did this get made. <laughs> now, now, you let's just, be nice about fellow podcasts. They're, well, they're comedians. Well, of course. They're not, they're not critics like us. They're, they're not Renaissance men, philosopher kings, as we style ourselves. Well, I do, anyway. Yeah, just... just Back to Nigel yeah, Smallfalls. Yeah, just declaring yourself king. <laughs> no one else is going to, trust me. Anyway, Baxter has been held hostage it's been dragged out of the prison by the Cubans along with Paola and uh, they're trekking through the forest with the rebel singers it's all very Che Guevara and um, it is it's very exciting nice. and it looks pretty on the screen but I did catch myself thinking I wouldn't want to be in that um, jungle because I bet it's riddled with cobwebs and nasty um, well, cobwebs yeah yes yeah, oh, how, how horrid yeah, I don't want one in the face with a nasty great big spider in the middle of it. And, and oh yeah, the spider. No one would want the spider. Oh, no, I wouldn't want it. I want to be it's in a five star co- hotel. It's the cobwebs you're worried about, you big girl. Yeah, I, I'm. No, I'm completely happy to concede that. Roster has a nice uh, moment with a, a young young boy who delivers a letter. Roster is wonderfully horrible to the kid. He <laughs> says, "What's this, you grubby child?" Takes the letter and then says to the kid, "Go on, bugger off." I love that's great I mean I've, I've, I've got a discussion point leverage as old colonialist he's just he's awful mm. but because the character is shaded so nicely and you get to see different sides of him you get a sense of him as a, as a human being almost even though he's oh yeah he's I mean borderline caricature yes he's not it's not a character of depth but it is a perfectly portrayed caricature and you get to see different sides. The fact that he's oh, he's also having this kinky affair with his secretary, which adds nothing to the movie. No, it's just a bit of funny character stuff. Yeah, although it does get it for via some chess moves, it gets him to Dolores, and Dolores is his punishment at the end of the film. Yes, basically. Yeah, he gets news that um, Baxter and Pamela have been held hostage, and they're tied to a tree. And there's some standard comedy stuff where Pamela's wriggling around and trying to find a knot, and in fact finds a knot in Michael Caine's pants. <laughs> and I was trying to remember the scene that I've seen that somewhere before. I think it might be in Blazing Saddles, where someone goes, not that one, in a high-pitched voice. It'll come back to me 20 years down the line, folks. There's a lot of marijuana smoking in Blazing Saddles as well. Hey, Bart! Hey, Bart! <laughs> Great, great moment. Um, the revolutionaries are talking about something called Terror Infiltration and Television, which has an acronym which we won't repeat. So they've seen cameras, and cameras means an audience, 
and they've decided that the singing rebel is going to basically make an appearance in front of these uh, in front of these cameras and here comes the moment which made me and my brother absolutely roll around laughing when we were kids and when i saw this moment it i hadn't seen it for literally decades and it made me laugh out loud again so malcolm um gives a television interview and it's on the quayside and the rebel singer decides to fire a missile at a building on the quayside so malcolm says that cascara is a model of stability common sense and tranquility the building behind him explodes rossiter's reaction is superbly reflexive but it's not that that makes me fall around laughing it's the next two bits where he and his colleagues absolutely dive into the water and then swim back to britain <laughs> and it's something the road one roadrunner would do it's um it's so cartoonish but because it's live action it's a beautiful moment of comedy that it's it's so well played and the cherry on the cake is him striking out away from the island it's just brilliantly done i'd say that scene particularly is is worth the watch for this film anyway the plot thickens someone from spenco rings fred gwynn and says there's a little problem here uh, one of the hostages is your daughter and he goes we were never that close what a nasty guy but it's Fred Gwynn because so you can't completely hate him uh, Baxter finds happiness with Pamela yeah and who would who would uh, take that away from him they try to make it look like she's been ravaged as a diversion uh, of course um, I think this is a great ploy in the midst of making her look ravaged he ravages her genius move from Kane there and of course they manage to get the drop on the Cubans they get distracted by pretty Pamela Kane draws a machine gun on them and uh, sends the Cubans packing and what's the last line the Cubans say? Oh they decide to go to Miami and become coke barons like Scarface and as they walk away one of them goes in in a Cuban accent another fine mess you've got me into (laughs) (laughs) That's, it's an eclectic script. So Kane basically says, if we don't move fast, we'll lose it. We'll lose the island to either the Cubans or the Brits. Connolly says, well, there are four of us, and one of us is a woman. And Pamela says, well, I can't believe I'm hearing this in the 80s. <laughs> and she's quite right, because 30 years later, in the middle of a huge push in Hollywood to big up women and get them into the positions of filmmaking power and get their voices out there and all of that this is not new and i suppose these days it's more of an organizational push yes it's not just that you know we must listen when the ladies are talking it's no we want them in positions of power even if you've got theresa may in power making a total mess of things we want filmmakers we want we also give them the same artistic avenues that's the societal shift these days. But as you can see from Water, Pamela is completely bemused, you know, 20 years after the 60s, to have someone like the Rebel Singer coming out with antiquated crap like that. Mm. Meanwhile, Rossiter's back in um, the bedroom with Dolores, who's, and he says to her, I bet you're feeling a lot of emotional stress with your husband's capture, and he's a hostage, and she's mm. sitting in bed in a feather boa with a cocktail looking completely nonplussed and 
rather wonderfully, he says, why don't you slip into that nun's habit again? <laughs> <laughs> Filthy devil. And Baxter and his new friends, the rebel singers, take over the well. They barge in, they manage to take control of it. And um, Pamela rings her dad and uh, tells him the good news, that she's going to blow the goddamn thing to hell. Yes, the film uh, does take an interesting turn when it starts treating suicide bombers as heroic. It is, yes, it's very different to, if that happens today, it would be uh, front page news. Also, the president is being briefed, um, and uh, one of his aides delivers the whole spiel, and then, after a moment, turns to one of the other people in the room and says, should I wake him? Mm. We, ne- we only see the back of the president's head. It looks like the back of Ronald Reagan's head. Yeah, but it's definitely meant to be Ronnie, We know, we know by this point he was mentally checked out. Mm, yes. And I believe that this is the start of Paul Heine's involvement in this film. Now, did you ever watch Now Get Out of That? No. Or, um... Oh, yes, I know the story that he was, um... He, he was, would spend a day doing different jobs, and... Uh, he, yeah, this him and Chris working, He was doing a day as an extra. So, did you see the, the episodes where he becomes an actor? With no. O- with Oliver Reed? Oh, I've seen the Oliver Reed clip. Yeah, the classic Oliver Reed clip. Oh, that was wonderful. Which, if, listener, check it out on YouTube. Oliver Reed is brilliant in the clip where he teaches Paul Heine acting and throws him out of his house for being a terrible actor. He, yes, <laughs> Oliver Reed was such an interesting man. I've got a lot of time for Oliver Reed. I like... I. I don't have a lot of time for his uh, rampant alcoholism <laughs> and the uh, um, the flushing of his obvious talent down the toilet. Mm. But um, I wish he'd just sobered up, frankly. Paul Heine was basically tutored to play a role in this film, and he plays a sort of... Is it a Russian mercenary, do you think? German. A German. And basically he's told to destroy the well. For that, they'll get a lot of money. And the, the scene that got replayed a lot... and not only for the um, trailers and on Now Get Out of That, was where they go, Viva the numbered bank account in Switzerland. <laughs> which, is, which is very amusing. So they've now got mercenaries and Cubans in play. The SAS are going to be sent in as well. Absolutely. Thatch is not having any of this. Well, uh, well as, uh, as Sir Malcolm says, uh, he wants the SAS to demonstrate the gratuitous violence and mayhem for which they are so rightly famous. And cross-check that line with Q, or rather the, the Q figure, in Never Say Never Again, telling Sean Connery, now that you're back, I hope we're going to get some of that gratuitous sex and violence. Well, I certainly hope so too. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's, there's lines that get reused. So numerous military forces are amassing around the island now and, and around the well. The, the Americans are there because apparently we're a fucking peacekeeping corps like hell. The SAS turn up, and the depiction of the SAS is clearly a piss take. Sandy, take no prisoners, Charlesworth. Did you notice what happened? What he does when he turns up on the hill? He gets out of the jeep, but he has to walk downhill to the American guy. But momentum makes him speed up, so he ends up running fast down the hill and has to backwards run back to the American guy. It's full of tiny little moments. This film. Like like that one. So Sir Malcolm rocks up outside the the oil well, the water well, the, with the, um, the Cascarans are at the well as well. Of course, they're, they sort of, are. they're all having a great big party there. It is. And Sir Malcolm brings along Delgado's 
father, Father McNabb, and his mother, who has a very noble-looking look to her, to basically gets them to lay down their arms and to give up. And added to that, he also brings along Dolores, who is very good in this scene. She raises a hand with a cigarette in it to acknowledge her presence. I think she believes she's, a, she's um, Eva Perum. Malcolm calls her your distraught wife of 14 years. <laughs> I believe Michael Caine has kind of abandoned the accent by this stage. Would you say that it fluctuates? It does fluctuate, yeah. It does a bit, yeah. But he's loosened up. He's uh, embraced his uh, working class background. Uh, yeah. Before he got the scholarship to Eton, you know. He's definitely loosened up by this stage. And now he's got a machine gun in his hands. So Malcolm, Leonard Rossiter, decides to go and have a, a face-to-face, walks through the gates, walks down the hill to approach Michael Caine, and if you watch him, it's tiny, tiny little moment that he does a stumble. Oh, yes. And that, folks, is perfect comedy acting. That's what you get when you hire someone of Leonard Rossiter's calibre. That's perfectly in character. It's funny and it's technically excellent mm. as well. I, I did that frame by frame to see if it was an accident. And you can see him just nudge his left foot slightly to the right so that he overbalances. That got, this guy's a master. I was very dismayed to hear that this was released posthumously. You wouldn't have got that kind of thing with John Cleese because there's a kind of control there. Mm. Um and I think it speaks to Rossiter's background as a stage actor. Yes. Because it's all about perfectly crafted and timed movement. And all coming out of the character. Yes. This is not just done for effect. He's, he was a character actor. He specialised mm. in comedy roles. Mm. But he was nevertheless a character actor. He was never a comedian or anything like that. Yes, I, com- I completely agree. And in fact, watching this film, rewatching it for uh, for this podcast, makes me appreciate him a lot, an awful lot more. I really must track down, um, particularly Reginald Perrin. So he tries to talk Michael Caine into laying down the uh, his weapons. There is a sniper watching this from afar to try and take out the the rebels if they can. And a wonderfully written uh, Dolores gets up and starts shouting over the megaphone have you told him about us Malcolm <laughs> now we're together and Rossiter explodes and shouts where's your bloody sniper man take her out <laughs> it's brilliant doesn't she uh, doesn't Dolores announce that she wants a divorce and, and boom yay yeah. everyone throws their arms in the air it's wonderful meanwhile on a nearby beach the mercenaries have arrived and before they blow the cliff up, they decide to have a bit of lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, one of them gets up and reads out a menu. Did you notice who this person is? Is that is that what's his name? But Larry's down. Oh no, it's um, it's Alfred Molina. It's Alfred Molina, um, but in just a tiny little role. It's Doctor Octopus, folks. Well, this um, is a few years after Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was his first film. Oh, really? Oh, of course, yeah. Plays Satipo um, in the opening sequence. It, but it is a really... I mean, he's literally just doing this one gag where he reads out and, and he says, um, we'll have a nice uh, uh, Saint-Emilion which will um, convince the most jaded of palates. <laughs> it's, it's wonderfully <laughs> florid. Yeah, uh, wonderful stuff. So the rebel singers are picked up to go and off and sing at the... Um, the United Nations. Pamela's uh, promise to get them in front of the media has paid off. 
and uh, they they set up the roadies all have rebel singer uh, jackets the producer says this is bigger than the moonwalk <laughs> which is a bit of a reach and then they start singing and um, worth noting the director of the tv broadcast ah i oh, see that's what uh, you did this yeah, yeah. it's dick clement no not not that guy I believe so. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I didn't. I didn't know. I wouldn't have been able to pick them out of a crowd. Yeah, he it, because they start off rather boringly in their performance. He gets a great line. Unless that guitar turns out to be a machine gun, we're in trouble. But then the other members of the band start turning around to face the audience, and it's Ringo Starr, George Harrison, and Eric Clapton. Now, <laughs> now of, of course, George Harrison was executive producer. And the founder of Handmade, so obviously he he's in there. Mm. Call him favors for mm. the for Ringo and and Clapton. But you know, the, suddenly the United Nations uh, Center becomes a venue for this great freedom yeah. song. There are two people I I don't recognize because I'm not not a muso. There's one guy who seems to get he's on a, another guitar who's, I think he's from something like the Moody Blues or something. Do you have a picture? I don't think I do. I do have a shot of the credits, actually, which I'll, I'll bring up later. It might on, be which Jeff Lynn. It could be. Um, and I think there's another drummer sitting next to Ringo, who's from another uh, rock band. So I do think everybody is quite famous in that group. Backing singers also seem very capable. Um, I, th- I suspect, I seem to recall they're, they're also professional singers. I'm not a great Clapton or Beatles fan. I'm... I'm you know, yes, they're they're great musicians and all of this, but so I'm not that excited to see them. But it's knowing the the background in handmade films, it makes perfect sense. George Harrison is there. It's very odd to see these characters suddenly there in the film. It's a sort of intrusion of reality into this light comic farce. Well, bear in mind, George Harrison invented the benefit concert. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice little That's a nice touch, yes. jab at his own uh, reputation. He was well known for having uh, a, a good sense of humour about himself. You must have heard the story about um, after he was attacked in his own home, that lunatic broke in and stabbed him in the night. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've heard this. Well, this, you've you've heard that he was attacked. No, this was <laughs> this was a few years before he died. Mm-hmm. But this was only a few years before he died. Um, he w- some maniac broke into his house and attacked him in his sleep and he was being carted out to the ambulance quite seriously injured uh, past his staff including a gardener who'd only joined a few days earlier and he beckoned the gardener and he says what do you think of the job so far? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so that's that's, yeah, he's... that's pretty good and George liked uh, a, a jazz cigarette or two, as did Ringo, and certainly Eric Clapton. Uh, and, there's, and there's the connection with um, uh, Billy Connolly as well. Because oh, of he, course. He was the big overlap between music and comedy. Yes. So, yeah, I find it... Uh, I remember watching it when I was a kid, and uh, I obviously wasn't very aware of who, who these characters were. It went over my head a bit. But, um, but, but now... It's it's kind of a bit of a you know it captures them in that moment. George is looking a little bit thin and wasted. Eric Clapton looks quite young. Ringo looks like Ringo. Ringo actually looks a little bit like the guy who's currently playing Spock in Star Trek Discovery. Oh yes, with the um, chin beard. 
Anyway, whilst the concert's going on, chin beard. You know that little sort of under the neck beard thing that, that they, beard. they do these that young types like to do these days. The people who wear hats indoors. Oh well, you know, a plague upon them. I will not have that in my home. Oh dear. I'll take off the chicken hat then, folks. Baxter sees the uh, the French setting bombs, mm. and uh, he manages to. <laughs> overpower one sneak around he, over, he overpowers one just as he is about to be overpowered because he says oh it's, it's the bloody French I can smell the gun yes <laughs> which would have got a chair and we would get a chair these days as well Heine uh, attacks Kane and comes out with a line which I think I might be wrong I think it's the line that he had to repeat in front of Oliver Reed which is for the bloodshed and the money and Reed was trying to get him to take it all down and play, play it very internal where, and not overact and Reed was constantly going what the hell are you doing what the hell do you think you're doing that's not acting you know again that's a, just a really great clip to track down you must put post the link to that on Cinema Limbo I'll see what I can do yeah but the oil rig is saved uh, they managed to rip the bombs off throw them into the nearby jungle there's a huge explosion they've, paid, they've definitely paid money for the explosions in this film and um, and that seems to save the day Except, except a seam opens up in the cliff face, Damn. and the water starts pouring out into the sea. And I don't know how they did that. Do you think they just had pipes up there, which they they just went? Psh. I, I must have been something like that. Yeah, because they look like it's literally Pour, shooting pouring straight out of the actual cliff yeah. face. So they, uh, in a rather nice shot, they, they, the, uh, our friends walk up the hill from the, the now useless um, well, Derek. there is the bit where the, uh, the, the mercenaries, their job done. So, so Dustin says, oh, it's very nice to do business with you. And hands back to his business card. Yes. <laughs> Should you need no, anyone like this? No hard feelings, just here doing a job. Yeah. Which is exactly how they would approach it. Um, so, yeah, they, they walk up the hill and um, uh, shooting the breeze and... Unfortunately, there is now no money or jobs for Cascara, so it's all a bit fatalistic. Yeah, all the water's gone. Pamela throws Baxter a lifeline. She says that the guano of the bats that she's been there to to save, it's one of the world's richest fertilisers. Which is an interesting little offer there, because just as she says it, behind them... Well, a... Baxter does say, well, I, um, what are the people on the island supposed to eat while they're waiting for bats to crap? Yes, good old Michael Caine. And at that point, God intervenes, and uh, the well... <laughs> Played by John Cleese. <laughs> What's all this nonsense? Uh, and, yeah, there's suddenly a strike, and this time it's not water, it's, it's oil. It's the black gold. Exactly, which, of course, is mentioned right at the start, and that's a good script for you. I, I do look upon that now and I think actually that probably means that Cascara is going to be absolutely raped by the oil companies and Shell are going to get in there and Cascara will see none of the money and actually it's going to herald a terrible future and then once they've taken all the oil Cascara will go straight back to poverty but that's the cynical 2019 viewer at the time this would have been you know great they're in the money mm. It does mean, as Leonard Roster points out, that Margaret Thatcher is going to have his balls. But Cascara is getting its uh, independence, after all, as the flag of the British Empire yeah. is lowered for the last time over the island and uh, Baxter hands it to Sir Malcolm. And with his, his last attempt to save him face, 
I think you'll find the rope also belongs to the United Kingdom. Mm. Yes, a uh, nice touch because he complained about the rope soup earlier on. He gets a call from the boat behind him and it's Dolores in her finest outfit screaming, I want to leave now. And if Mrs. Thatcher doesn't have his balls, then Dolores certainly will. I think that's exactly what we're meant to divine from that scene. And the credits roll, and the credits are delightful. And everyone's having a great big dance party on the quayside. And Michael Caine is dancing away in the middle of the crowd. It is not a performance. He is... You can just... You just know that A, the character would be completely partying hard, and B, Kane is actually loving this. You see Fulton Mackay, his arms thrown over two women, loving every moment. It's just a, a moment of blissful joy. The British Empire is in ruins. Thatch has been usurped, corrupted, her plans foiled. Who knows what's going to happen to the British Empire, but the message to take home... The, the good, is, honest people of Cascara and their... their leader of great integrity and mm. compassion have triumphed over the cruel and inhumane British Empire quite right too and the message of water is that you want to be part of humanity rather than some horrible uh, uh, you know the political fools the, the establishment and that if you loosen up and you smoke a, a jazz cigarette good will out Yes. So it's an extremely heartwarming film. There are uh, made on location in San Lucia, the West Indies, and Devon. I did think particularly the shot of them walking up the hill from the Derrick was probably... Yes, the old Derrick sequence as well, all shot in Devon. Yeah. And there's a thank you. The producers wish to express their thanks to the government and people of San Lucia for their enthusiasm, goodwill, and cooperation during the making of this film. Uh, you know. And it's played over um, more Eddie Grant or... Um, or maybe even Bob Marley. The soundtrack is great. It's just full of positivism and humanity above all. Yeah, it's it's a tremendously warm, warm is and exactly. upbeat story. It's almost like a, a latter day Ealing comedy about the mm. the little man triumphing over the uh, the big mean organisation. Think Sellers could do the Leonard Roster role? Uh, well, he was even more dead. Well, yeah, but it, you know, if, from an Ealing comedy point of view, think of him in um, I'm Alright, Jack. Well, Fred Kite's a very different kind of character. I was thinking of Carlton Brown of the FO, but he actually plays the the local corrupt official rather than the um, uh, the uh, the Whitehall type. Ian Carmichael. I I think Ian Carmichael I is too much of a good guy. Right. I think these days they'd probably cast Branner in the role and nobody would believe it. It would just be, it's Kenneth Branner. Yeah. Um, I I do think if Rowan Atkinson was younger, he'd probably pull it off. What but... about Branner as Baxter? Yes, but I, again, I still can't help thinking that's Sir Kenneth Branner, a uh, noted director, uh, who... I, I just wouldn't believe him in the role. I'd much more believe Kane in the role. Kane is, is Kane in the role... But it's, he's doing the slight little character st- bits and pieces. It's, yeah. um, it backs is slightly on the skids. <sighs> Colin Firth is Baxter. Yes, definitely. He could do that. Yeah. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Because he has that mix of upper-class sophistication and totally prepared to laugh and at himself. And he's your dad. 
he's kind of got that sort of that that slice of that British home counties received pronunciation. It's Bridget Bridget Jones's Darcy boyfriend. Yeah. That sort of that sort of thing that he does so well. Colin, you've got it spot on. That'd be an excellent choice. Or um, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant now definitely. Yeah. In fact, it would be almost too obvious to cast Grant. Yeah, because Grant now is becoming... I mean, he's, he's now so well known for his public image as being quite anti-establishment himself, mm. vocally opposed to um, exploitation. Yes. It would be, I think, weird to see him as like a, an establishment figure like Baxter, because maybe, he, maybe he'd be better as Eric, <laughs> as the womanising reverend. He'd be very, I mean, he's got the comedy chops to pull that off. Absolutely. I, I don't think he looks as um, as steeped in twenty years of whiskey as um, no, as, you'd, as you'd need to be for that role. But but definitely those two. Uh, if if Curtis approached this and decided I'm going to do a rewrite of this and that would be my next film, you can guarantee he'd pick that from his from Firth, from um, and from Grant. But I've got no problems with those those two. They'd be excellent in the role. Kane is quite an odd choice. Obviously, from a production point of view, it sells the film. Unfortunately, it didn't sell the film because it was going down the toilet a bit. But, but what a cast! It's an amazing cast. It's just this chocolate box of um, wonderful British actors from Maureen Lipman, Alfred Molina, Ruby Wax, Herman Munster. His name is Fred Gwynn. He's Herman Munster. And but then you get Paul Heine doing. An episode of a BBC TV series where he's pretending to be an actor. But then you've got multiple Oscar nominee Michael Caine, mm-hmm. Oscar nominee Valerie Perrine, one of the most respected British comic actors. Yes. Brenda Vaccaro. Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly. Fulton Mackay. Yeah, what else do it's you need? all the way down. And you've got two writers with at least 25 years of experience behind them doing an original script for the family, from May- and it's British... Uh, why did why wasn't this bigger? I mean, I don't know. I, it may have been internal politics at hand, made because Dennis O'Brien, particularly later in the eighties, was becoming more and more of a millstone for the uh, the whole production. Was this the same Dennis O'Brien who slagged off with now and I? Yeah, yeah, because that was handmade. Yeah, Bruce Robinson saying the man has no sense of humour. He didn't have a sense of humour. No, he had no idea what he was doing. Yeah, he was a financier. Yeah, the creative bedrock of uh, Handmaid was George Harrison. Yes, definitely. Who, for the most part, was happy just to let people carry on and, and make their movie without his interference. Because, as, as I said, I'm not a big Beatles aficionado, but I cannot deny, be- because of their music and the money, and what they did with the money, the end result was Handmaid Films. And and if you were just to pick one, it would be The Life of Brian, which would be a central, you know, stick it in an archive, send it into space... That's what you want to be represented by. I'd say Wuthering Heights, to be honest. I I think Life of Brian is more subversive, and I think oh, at the, the end, for always look on the bright side of life. I think that's just unbeatable. People are I, nailed to a cross seeing that. They're not nailed up. They're tied to okay, crosses. Yeah. There there are other handmade films I prefer to Life of Brian, mm. but if you want something as as you say, if you want something to be remembered mm. and to say this is what was important, then you'd have to you have to choose the one that's important rather than the one that you think is best. Yeah, but and I agree with you. I think I would turn to, I turn to with Nan and I over and over again. I don't necessarily turn to 
Life of Brian and watch that repeatedly. But I think Life of Brian is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd say I've watched The Long Good Friday repeatedly. I've seen that many times. I've seen that once. I did like that a lot. I must watch that again. I'll obviously send you all the screenshots of Pierce Brosnan in it. I know you will. You always do. Well, it's just because I know you love them so much. A great film. It's a little film. Listener, seek out water. It's not available on DVD. Uh, it's not available on Blu-ray. But no one wants you to see it apart from us. Write to Michael Caine. Mm. Write to Sir Michael Caine. Write to Sir Billy Connolly. Yes. Um, Get Pamela Stevenson on the case to contact her friends in the media, and I'm sure she's she can pull some strings. It's um, that's the connection actually, Rowan Atkinson, because not now Of years. course, yeah. This film definitely deserves a proper release, and yeah. it is not just that we're talking about it in terms of it's a piece of heritage or anything like that. It's a funny it's film. A, it's a great contemporary movie. Yes, it feels fresh and modern because it's about the little Englander versus the mm. the person with actual experience, and that's very contemporary. Yes, and it's it's warm, it's funny, it's sharp. It entertained you when you were 10. It's entertaining mm. you now at the age of 70. Um, it's, it is a film that is almost boundless in its appeal and possibility. Might say that's a recommendation. It is. Thanks to Anthony for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, never mind the pineapples. Have your lips around this. Look what you brought in.